Francisco. Thank you uh, so much, everyone, for having me, and thank you to Professor Pepper, as well as to uh, Ms. Miller for helping arrange everything. It is really an incredible honor to be able to stand here at the LSC. Of course, this building did not exist when I was here back in the Stone Ages last century, but it's, um, it's, it's, it's great to be here. When the United States rolled into Iraq in 2003, it rolled in with an incredible amount of firepower, both on the land, in the air, on the ground, in terms of, in terms of feet, boots on the ground, they call it, as well as the largest organization in the world behind it in terms of determining what they should be doing, how they should be doing it, and with which tools they should be doing it with. The United States Department of Defense, for those who don't know, is an organization of roughly three million people with roughly an annual expenditure, an annual budget, about 25% the size of the entire GDP of the United Kingdom. So there is no lack of resources. It has an incredible amount of very smart people in it on the scientific side, on the academic side, on the research side, and certainly many capable war fighters on it. So they went in based on certain predictions, certain degrees of certainty that they thought that they were going to counter when they went in. Of course, this is what they found. They met the adversary, and the adversary, recognizing that they could not match them on a, as a peer competitor, right, as capability for capability, dollar for dollar, they went asymmetric. What that means is they started to use the little resources they had available to them to start to create IEDs, right, improvised explosive devices which could be laid anywhere in the land, anywhere in the road, and cause an incredible amount of damage. What's more, causes an incredible amount of disruption and ability to protect and defend territory and to annoy the heck out of the United States. Now let's think for a second about the IEDs. The reason IEDs are possible, and we can put this corollary in a management standpoint, the reason IEDs are possible is because there is no lack of knowledge currently available to almost anybody in the world. If you want to put a new device together, if you want to come up with a new product, if you want to come up with a new capability, or you have an idea for something, and you maybe don't have the technical know-how on how to do it, the internet is there. You can literally take classes from the greatest universities in the world, graduate classes, for free from any university. Not only is the knowledge there with the internet, but the ability to control the narrative is there with the internet. This applies both in a battle space and also in a marketplace. What that means is that the person with the biggest budget, whether that be a defense budget or a marketing budget, does not control the narrative. The person that can reach their tribe, their group, someone who resonates with that message, they can control the narrative, and that narrative albeit for a local cause, can be expanded globally. So you can touch people around the world, and not only can you touch them, but they can then touch you back. So you can control the narrative. Another incredible factor behind the IED is stuff is cheap. There are supply chains around the world that can supply you with almost anything you need to make almost any device, whether that be a physical device, hardware, or obviously in the software domain. 
So you can tap into those global supply chains to be able to get the materials you need to, de to develop whatever it is that your heart desires to do, whether it be for ill or good. And the, th the next component is that these materials are really easy to use. Over the last 60 or 70 years, there's been a revolution in interface. Not only, obviously, what we see in the iPhone and, and, and apps and the such, but you see it in the way industrial products can move, meet together. The way that parts can be combined, there's been a revolution in interfaces, allowing for a near infinite amount of permutations. Now that amount of permutations caused a tremendous amount of headache for the U.S. Department of Defense. Because the way that they approached trying to solve this problem was by figuring out the permutations. The way that they who went in with this, right, with the huge R&D body, our budgets, with the huge academic departments, with the huge capabilities to experiment and figure things out and make things, they approached this like they would any other engineering problem. They approached it with a concept of certainty. They approached it with the concept of saying, let's go measure, countermeasure, measure, countermeasure, and somehow we will end up on top. Right? In chess, there's a concept called pace. Right? Whoever has pace is always one move ahead. They thought that they could get one move ahead. So, I'll tell you how this, how this conflict went. Right? The adversary started putting IEDs and their detonators underground. The, the, the U.S. forces couldn't see them. Obviously, these vehicles are extremely heavy. They roll over the pressure plate, detonates, causes damage. The United States said, you know what? We can put something heavier in front of our vehicle. And they literally put steamrollers. I don't know what they're called here in the UK, but you know, large pieces of steel that are used to flatten concrete when you're building roads in front of the convoys. So that they would roll over, trigger the, the detonate the plate, and, and damage would be caused to the, to the steamroller. Adversary said, no problem, we can put a delay on the trigger. The United States said, no problem, we'll vary the, the length. So you don't even know what the delay is supposed to be. They said, fine, forget about the weight, we're going heat. Because the steamroller doesn't emit heat, the undercarriage of your vehicle does. So there's suddenly heat-triggered IEDs. The response to the trigger ID is literally to take a heating coil from a toaster oven and stick it out in front of the convoy, let that trigger it. You let it get real hot and let that detonate. The answer is a delay. The response is varying, varying the length out. So it continues on and on and nobody gets pace. Because at the end of the day, what you're talking about here is not a system that's limited by knowledge or permutations. You're talking a system which is inherently uncertain. You're talking about a system which is inherently tapping into the will, desire, and creativity of individuals. And it's that uncertainty from people which gives this kind of conflict and right now, I would say, any kind of industry or marketplace that you're competing in or contemplating competing in, it's that that gives the edge in the space.
Because that does not have a simple engineering type of solution. That does not have a single type of solution that you can work it out because it's up to the individual creativity and the will of the individual. And that uncertainty is the ultimate competitive advantage. This is a replica of the bomb that was dropped on Hiroshima. It's called, if I remember correctly, it's called Little Boy. This was the product, again, of the most money you had on Earth, of the greatest minds working on Earth. Doesn't matter where they came from, right? They were the Axis allies, everybody together, put into a facility, develop this. And it is an incredibly destructive weapon. Obviously. But it only works when you have another peer who's playing in the same domain. It works when you have a peer competitor like the USSR when it existed that was able to and interested in competing in this domain. But the minute you have somebody who comes and changes the game, who wants to move ahead with their agenda, wants to introduce a product in your space, dominate your service, take over your territory, and that territory can be physical or it can be access to areas, whether that be the GPS capabilities, sea, whatever it is, financial systems. The many of someone who wants to go in there doesn't have the same dollar for dollar comparison, there's an incredible amount of creativity they can unleash. This only works when you have a massive infrastructure. When you have the ability also to build delivery systems, when you have supply chains, when you have everything that builds this. So while it is incredibly powerful, while it is the 3,000 pound gorilla, its tactical capabilities, its ability to respond to a wide array of competitive threats is relatively limited. At the same time that the bomb was being developed, the Soviets were building the AK-47. This has turned out to be an incredible game changer in the world. This is the original iPhone of disruptive capabilities. It is super easy to use. You can mess it up in a million different ways and it'll still work, has really loose tolerances. You can bury it in the sand, pick it up 10 years later, dust it off, and it works. And you don't even have to hit the target for it to be effective. Because if somebody comes running at you with this thing just firing, you're, you're gonna move, right? You're not gonna like pretend like you dodged the bullets because it's so inaccurate, doesn't matter. It has its effect. Peer competitor, tactical. Strategic advantage, tactically flexible. Able to work under many conditions of uncertainty and able to introduce uncertainty into almost any situation. And it's perfectly made for the internet world. Because, like the iPhone, by the way, I don't consider the iPhone to be this destructive, but like the iPhone, this has become an incredible symbol. For the internet age where you want to control the narrative, 
where you want to be able to project an affiliation with a peer competitor or with other people, and again, reach out globally and touch back locally, this has become an incredible symbol. Every jihadist photo or video that you see, every rebellion that you see someone trying to stand up against authority, whether that be in Europe, whether that be in Asia, whether that be in the subcontinent, it doesn't matter. This is the international symbol of disruption and resistance. Every single jihadi video has a guy holding this in it. He'll have it in his right hand, and he'll have the flag, the, 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 the flag of his cause behind him in the left. This has been a perfect vehicle for working with uncertainty and creating uncertainty. Another incredible thing about it, because it wasn't developed as a commercial product, the Soviets used it and its plans as a means of expanding their sphere of influence. There are factories all over the world that make this. There are factories all over the world that make ammo for this thing. And you can swap parts everywhere, and it's cheap. So like we were talking about at the beginning, there's a supply chain everywhere. There's low cost, and there's easy interface between this and, again, you almost don't need any expertise to know how to use this. Putting it back into our marketing world, putting it back into our management world. This created an infrastructure that can think tactically and respond to uncertainty or create uncertainty. Very often when we're taught management principles, we're taught about things that rely on a high degree of prediction and a high degree of control and control systems. In today's world, that doesn't, is not always the case particularly with some of these more touchy-feely aspects, like controlling the narrative, you could hold this in a video. You can't hold that in a video. You can't even get access to that. Okay. Anyone know what this is? (laughs) So this is a BlackBerry 6130. I love this. I literally had this model. This was the greatest thing since sliced bread. This allowed me to have my email on the go. And that rollerball up on the top, that track wheel, man, like, you could get really good at using that. This was the dominant player. BlackBerry controlled the market, defined the market, created the market, owned it, flat out, hands down. 2007, Steve Jobs came and said, I'm going to make one of these. There we go. First version of the iPhone. Nobody at BlackBerry believed that this was possible. They said, can't have battery, can't have the processor, can't have the screen. How are you going to do it? What kind of, what kind of environment and ecosystem are you going to have? Right? This, is from this, this is a hardware manufacturer of computers and, uh, and, and music devices. What do they know about telephony? It wasn't about telephony. It's about mobile computing. It was about user experience, ease of use. BlackBerry had blinders on. They were not able to see what was coming down the pipe. They were thinking so strategically that they couldn't think tactically that things could come and change 
their entire field. That someone outside of their domain, a non-peer competitor, could cause massive disruptions in their business. But it did. Until this guy came. An advertising company said, I'm going to get into the game. Right? Google's a massively large advertising company. That's what they do. They sell ads. They said, we're going to do this. We're going to go in. We're going to forget about the hardware. We're just going to concentrate on the software side of it. And we're just going to give it away. Totally different model than these guys. And this became, again, extremely disruptive and created another, uh, an ecosystem for uncertainty. So much so that they now control 85% of the market and Apple controls 12. And of course, BlackBerry is a footnote. Maybe, sometimes. Obviously, Apple is still making oodles and oodles of money. Right? They're on their way to, and I believe this, to being the first $1 trillion market cap company. I think when the watch comes out, it's going to be incredible for their revenue. But from a market space perspective, Apple was outflanked because they didn't care about making any money on it. They literally made so much money just capturing a share of the search revenue and the advertising away from Apple on Apple's devices that it more than paid for Android's development. Again, knowledge is, 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 is readily accessible. Ease of use is right there. You have the standard guides. And what the heck? Apple already blazed the, the trail. So it was really easy to do this. Going back to the peer competitors. This is a peer competition that's happening every moment of our lives. There is ongoing cyber warfare of millions of attacks a week. This is a picture, you know, if you can rely on the news source of a group within China, which is continuing to attack United States systems. And this is a picture of U.S. Cyber Command, continuing to defend and perhaps also try to stake its claim in that space. Now here you have a peer-to-peer -peer competitor. It doesn't require industrial capability. It doesn't even require supply chains. It just requires basically a phone line and knowledge. And you can cause massive amounts of disruption in almost any system. Now what's incredible about this is this also can cross domains. In 2011, in the cyber world, there started a campaign in Mexico against the big drug cartels, which were waging incredible amounts of violence in the country. There's a group called Los Zetas, which is one of the predominant gangs and surviving gangs out of all the wars over the last 15 years. They have global presence with, with drugs. There was a group of bloggers in Mexico that started blogging about where these narco-terrorists were and their activities. The setas didn't like it very much. So they started kidnapping the bloggers, killing them, and hanging them from bridges with notes. It said, see something, say something, you end up dead. Anonymous, the hacker group, for some reason, 
decided to take this cause on. It's unclear whether they were whether one of the people they kidnapped was a member of Anonymous or whether they saw this as a freedom of, of, of cyberspace issue or whether they were just, you know, somebody was keen to get into the fight. So Anonymous started getting into the fight and started sending Losetas notes that we're going to release information about every government official that's on your payroll, about where you live, where your families live, all of this. Losetas crosses domains says, we're no good in information space. We're no good in trying to get people necessarily the narrative to our cause. We're really good at hurting people. So they kidnapped somebody from Anonymous. And Anonymous said, if you don't release him by a certain day, we're going to flush the system with information about you. Losetas had a potential response, which was to start to go, you know, essentially nuclear and start to kill masses of people. At the end of the day, they blinked and released the person and Anonymous went away and didn't get into that fight anymore. But every market space and battle space that you operate in, and certainly that you will operate in when you graduate or as you might be operating in now, has the potential for adversaries and competitors, and it could be you, to cross boundaries leverage uncertainty that exists in every domain and start to escalate and really push your agenda. Because people power projects. Ultimately, it's human beings that are delivering these results. It's not schedules. It's not business plans. It's not strategic goals. Very often there might be a vision behind it, but it's people that are pushing these agendas and coming up with these solutions. And people are wildly creative, wildly inventive, and wildly unpredictable. Now sometimes we think that we can predict people with engineering skills and with the same mindset of engineering, the same kind of analytic approach. Right? We can fire a rocket and 10 years later it ends up on a comet 300 million miles away. So we're really good at doing like what seems like hard stuff. But all of those follow some sort of laws of physics. And while I believe that there are such a thing as social sciences, I truly believe that, we're not at a point yet where necessarily people can be predicted in that sense. There was a brilliant Air Force colonel named John Boyd. This is the only paper he ever published, and it's about the coolest eight pages you could ever read in your life. And it's called Destruction and Creation. Now, John Boyd was interested in figuring out how humans made decisions under highly competitive environments. And this thing pulls in Goodall's incompleteness theorem. It pulls in Heisenberg's uncertainty, laws of thermodynamics. I mean, it's, it's, it is a brilliant piece of work. And the way he started getting interested in it, besides being a far-ranging and very bright intellectual person, is he was a fighter pilot in the Korean War. And after the Korean War in 1974, which is obviously much later than the Korean War in the United States, he was asked to study why it is that the U.S. Air Force pilots were able to beat 
the Korean pilots with the Soviet MiGs in, in dogfights in the air. Of course, being a fighter pilot, he said it's natural. It's because we're so good, right? But um, when you look on paper, from an engineering perspective, from a theoretical perspective, they were outgunned technically. From a planning perspective, from a capabilities perspective, the MiGs were better aircraft. They should have won every single time, but they didn't. So they sent Colonel Boyd to go figure out why. So he talked to people, and he looked at things, and he did different simulations in his head. And he realized that in two aspects, two fundamental aspects, the U.S. planes were different. The U.S. planes had a wider, more open canopy. They were able to see more of the battle space that was going on around them. They were able to see what their adversary was doing. They didn't have the same blinders and blind spots that the MiGs did. And the other thing was they were able to turn faster. Now, in a dogfight, like we were talking about with IEDs, like you see in most marketplaces, it's, it's tit-for-tat, cat-and-mouse, peer-to-peer game. And everybody has studied the other person's, excuse me, tactics and strategy already. So everybody knows and anticipates what the other person is going to do. So it's really a matter of being able to do it faster or see when there's a deviation in there. And then you capitalize on it and then you win. Because of the broader canopy and the ability to move faster, that's why the U.S. planes and the pilots were able to win. They weren't blinded and, brought, and with blinders on, let's say, like BlackBerry was. They were able to capitalize and maneuver when they saw a change in the battle space. They were able to work with uncertainty that was there. Now, out of this, he came up with something called UDA. UDA is an acronym, because everything in defense is an acronym. And it stands for Observe, or Observation, Orientation, Decision, and Action. And it is a theory on human decision-making. It means that we observe what's going around in our environment, then based on our orientation, based on our training, on our background, on our culture, on our whatever we've learned from the environment around us, we somehow filter everything through that. We then make some decisions and we take actions. This is a theory on human behavior. And this is a paper of his from 1987. And he, used to, he didn't use PowerPoint, right? He used to scrawl these things out. And he has this really cool document called Organic Design for Command and Control. Because the black box of all of this, the magic voodoo, happens in orientation. And he called it the Schwerpunkt. It's a German word. And he says, orientation is a Schwerpunkt. Right? It shapes the way we interact with the environment. And it, 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 a orientation shapes the way we observe. It filters what we see. It helps, it filters and determines what we decide and the way we act. And it's a loop. Because the way we act then instigates certain reactions in the environment. And then it allows us, we then creates different observations. We see them. Our orientation shifts and changes and moves. Now, Schwerpunkt is a super cool word. 
But I did philosophy at the London School of Economics. And I was taught to abhor the use of opaque words and foreign words. George Orwell, 60 years ago, famously wrote that if, you can, if there's a foreign word that you're going to use, it's, it's a sloppiness of thought. And I was beat again and again and again intellectually to go for intellectual clarity. So Schwerpunkt, albeit a cool world, doesn't tell me a lot. Right? There's a famous phrase by Nietzsche in his aphorisms that says, just because you can't see the bottom of the well doesn't mean that it's deep. It could just be dirty. So... I set about trying to figure out how we can understand Schwerpunkt. How can we understand somebody's orientation? And the cool thing is we can do it through communication. Because communication is how people work together and make decisions. Communication is the observation part of that OODA loop. And communication is recursive. Because the way that I talk to you will determine the way that you talk to me. The way that I set up my strategy in the organization will determine how people act and what the outputs are and therefore what then gets filtered up to me in reports. My business plan will determine what somebody does relative to my idea and that will then determine how I implement my business plan. It's a recursive, ongoing loop through communication. And what's super cool is that since everything is done electronically now, we can use another concept that I learned here at the LSE of revealed preferences. Revealed preferences tells us that I don't care what's going on inside the human mind because I can see the choices people make. Right? I don't care why is it that if I put 20% more on a label, people buy more of it when I've raised the price at the same time. All I know is it does. Right now, there's a huge wave of behavioral economics trying to understand the inner workings of the human mind. It's, that's interesting, but from my perspective, not necessarily necessary. Because we can observe what people do with communication. It gives us the ability to start to see in that black box of Schwerpunkt, of orientation and decision-making, simply by looking at the, the, the observation and seeing the action. We could just intuit what the black box is doing in the middle, and it doesn't really matter, because if we can control the input here, for the, and we can get the output there, we can start to tune our organizations to start to solve the problems that we want them to. So, there's a concept called the communication object. And this is really just kind of getting a little, a little more formal with how we talk about communication. The communication object is the artifact that you're creating in the communication. But more than the artifact itself, it also includes the kind of nonverbal parts to it. Because there's many aspects to a communication that are not related to its content that directly impact the decisions people make and how people use that and the actions they'll take with it. Right? Just like in face-to-face -face communication, it's said that 93% of what comes across in meaning is nonverbal. Same thing in electronic communication. And we can study these by looking at object elements. We can take analytic tools or take simple catalogs of this kind of meta information on the objects. And we can use those to see how changing that meta information, those elements of the communication object, impact the kind of decisions people take and the actions they take with our communication objects.
And again, just kind of dialing it back to what we were talking about. This allows us to understand their decision-making and helps us when we're trying to think about or orient our companies towards uncertainty and leveraging uncertainty as competitive advantage. So there's a really bright guy out of Nevada called Dan Zarella who started looking at communication objects, hundreds of millions of them. He has a database of over 100 million tweets. And he started looking at retweet activity by hour. And what he found was that if you tweet out at 5 p.m., you are six times more likely to get retweet than if you do it at 9 in the morning. From a management perspective, what this means is that time of day is an object element that becomes overriding in the effectiveness of our communication objects and the effectiveness of the communication we have. It means that in that little black box of the orientation, the decision-making, time of day becomes a filter for people. It means that it doesn't matter what the content is necessarily. If you're trying to manage the message, if you get the message across at the right time, you can dominate. Right? You could be the greatest inventor in the world and come up with the solution to world hunger. If you tweet it at the wrong time, no one's going to hear you. You can be the President of the United States or the Prime Minister of Great Britain if you have the most important news or even irrelevant news. It doesn't matter. But you could be sitting at the top of the organizational chart. If you tweet it at the wrong time, it will get far less exposure. That's why press conferences are not done at 3 in the morning. Right? They're done at prime time so people can watch them and they'll pay attention to them. Time of day is an application of an analytic tool onto communication objects that derives useful information to understand that orientation decision-making part of how people react to an environment. Like time of day, day of the week also is important. If you want to publish something, or you want to pitch something, or you want to make a sales call, it makes a huge difference what time you make that sales call. Now, I'm not saying that these are hard and fast rules for every piece of communication, and if you want it to be read, you should send it out on Friday. Right? This is very specific to the Twitterverse and to about three years ago when, Seth, when um, Dan did his studies. But the point is that in your own communications, in your own organizations, you can look at these Elements, these pieces of meta information to determine what is most effective with the people that you're working with. What's most effective in the space that you're competing in. What's most effective for your method and your ability to generate objects. This is my favorite because this talks about volume of communication. There is a belief that the more you communicate, the better. The more you send something, the more effective it's going to be. The data says just the opposite and fast. This is click-through rates of links tweeted per hour. Right? This is how many times someone clicked on a link that was tweeted out from a particular account. If you made one tweet, you were three times more likely to have somebody click on that, that link than if you started doing two, three, or four. You can see that the minute you start overloading with communication, you start to quickly 
asymptotically approach zero in terms of effectiveness. If you're asking somebody for feedback and you send them a request for feedback on Monday and they don't answer and you send it to them on Tuesday and they don't answer and you send it to them on Thursday, they're not paying attention to you anymore. Right? You are irrelevant. You're a gnat in their world space right now. They've got a lot to do. They'll get to it when they get to it. Right? You're over-communicating. And what's worse is you're creating a silo. Because when the communication channel gets blocked, your knowledge and your ability to contribute to a solution, your ability to add your human creativity to this inherently uncertain domain has been blocked. Because instead of concentrating on what value you can bring, all they see is these repeated pokes that are coming from you. And that's dangerous, not only for your job security, but that's dangerous for the organization. Because that means that the organization is losing one of its most critical components, which is you or any other person who brings their creativity, their talents, their knowledge to the, to the organization and to meeting the challenges in the endeavor. So it's really important to get this right. Now, same thing with communication objects. There's such a thing as a communication environment. And the communication environment basically is the structure of the environment as it relates to communication. It's the channels. It's the way things move. It's the flow. It's who can talk to whom in the company. Who's allowed to ask the question? For many years, I was an advisor to this program from the state of Michigan. And Michigan is the home of Detroit. And Michigan went through a terrible, terrible economic period over the last 15 years. Much of it predicated by the demise of the U.S. auto industry, which now, thankfully, is, is going gangbusters and is pretty much one of the only growing markets in the world for automotives and is about to top you know, all, all previous records of amounts sold, of cars sold. But at that time, you had a lot of executives, senior executives, people who had signed POs for my product 20 years ago, let's say, who were now on the street and didn't have jobs. And it was incredible for me and very sad for me to see how these people were afraid to pick up the phone and talk to another human being. The organizations and the cultures, the communication environments that they had come from had told them they weren't allowed to talk to this other person. They weren't allowed to, to move through their, from their pay grade, as it were. So the communication environment can either create the right environment or it can be stifling. 3M is rumored and famously supposed to have a communication environment that says that no individual in the company is more than three hops, three degrees of separation from anybody else. That means the person making the post-it notes has three hops away from the CEO. That's a totally different communication environment. And they've been able to innovate for Decades and decades and decades in a span of domains. Now, just like there's a communication environment, there are design elements of the communication environment. Again, the application of analytic tools that allows us to understand that orientation and decision-making phase of human beings as it relates to the environment. And here's just one example. I'm the moderator on a site called projectmanagement.stackexchange.com. It's a Stack Overflow Stack Exchange site. 
And what we started to do is we started to play with our communication environment because we weren't getting a high level of engagement. We weren't getting the number of visitors we wanted, and more importantly, we weren't getting the knowledge sharing and knowledge creation that we wanted. So we started playing with the rules of the environment, of what qualified as a, as, as a sufficient and acceptable response in this global knowledge sharing place. Right? What, for this internet-based knowledge sharing activity, we started qualifying what legitimate participation looked like and what poor participation looked like. What was a good communication and a bad communication in the environment? And what we saw was as we started to find things that worked, we would be able to increase the definition and enforcement of that definition of the environment. And we saw a massive increase in the number of people providing quality answers. And these are all voted on by the community. So this means we had more people participating. We had a 4x increase in the number of da in daily traffic to the site. And we had a massive increase in the amount of valuable contributions that were going on. Now that's great from the perspective of the site itself, but it's really exciting from the perspective of management, me as a manager, because this is a massive knowledge sharing endeavor and almost anything that your organization is doing is a knowledge sharing and knowledge creation endeavor. When you want individuals to work together, when you want departments to come together to, to create new knowledge and share knowledge to solve problems. So this was a great case study for me on how that can translate into the world of management of an organization and directly impact your ability to meet customer needs. Now when it comes to needs, when it comes to problems in the world, we can categorize them in three classes. Tame, messy, and wicked problems. Tame problems are single-order systems. A tame problem is like fixing my sink. Even easier, the ones here that have uh, hot and, suffered hot and cold. It's even, even more single-order single, single order system. But it's fixing the sink. Right? You know where the problem is, you trace it, you find it. If you can't do it, you'll hire a SME, a subject matter expert, and a plumber who they can figure out what the problem is and you can solve it. There's no debate on what it's necessarily going to be, and it's not that difficult. It can be big, it can be expensive, but it's not hard. It's a single order system. Messy problems are second orders of complexity, as it were. Messy is when you start to have many systems interrelating. You start to have consumers interrelating with price, interrelating with, you know, relating to what it looks like and what the message is and what the brand affiliation is. Or when you're talking about engineering problems, you're talking about, let's say, an airplane. You have the airframe, airframe, the avionics, the software, the hardware that comes with it, the fuel. Many, many systems that are working together. So your problem becomes much more difficult, as it were, because there's a lot more elements. But you can always bring in the right amount of SMEs. You can always disaggregate the problem, chop it into bits, have experts look at the bits, figure out how it comes back together, and solve the problem. And if you can't, then any solution set, if there are multiple solution sets 
for the problem. Any solution set that you come up with will have the characteristic that if you are trying to optimize for a particular variable, for cost, for schedule, for revenue, for innovation, whatever it is, when you're trying to optimize for one variable, you can use that as a decision analysis mechanism. You can use that to figure out which one will get you the optimal outcome for that variable. So while it's albeit a lot more to work with, at the end of the day, it's not hard. We have models and computers and very bright people that can solve these problems. Wicked problems are a whole mess, a whole category, different category altogether. Because wickedness comes from us. We are wicked. It's not an existential statement. What it means is that we introduce a level of uncertainty into any system, into any market space, industry, or battle space, that you can't disaggregate it to a certain solution. You can't even disaggregate it to a number of solution sets, whereby if you optimize for X, you'll be able to solve and pick. So the decision-making becomes much harder because it's no longer about optimization. It's really about muddling through or satisfying, figure out what it is that your organization has the vision to accomplish and can start to move forward on. But there's a high degree of uncertainty. It's very tactical. It's not strategic. It ultimately means that while you can have a direction that you're moving towards, the way that it's going to be implemented, the way that you're going to address that from a management perspective is a culture that in fact allows people to be more tactical. You want to create, give people basically the AK-47, not a nuclear bomb. You want to empower people and your organization to address a wide variety of potential competitors, to tap into a wide variety of talents, Leverage those and use that to meet the need. It's not sit up in the room. It's a one shot. You figure out what it's going to be. Because now you're going to end up surprised like the U.S. Army did with the IED, like BlackBerry did with the iPhone, and like so many other industries and organizations have throughout the history of, of the market. So what a cool thing about on this orientation towards uncertainty. The cool thing about messiness, tame, or, or wickedness is that you can see manifestations of it. You can observe, again, going back to this revealed preferences concept, you can observe when an organization is geared towards tame and messy solutions and whether it's geared towards wickedness. I call that, going back to a particular, you know, to, to the Schwerpunkt, but it's much more firm. I call it orientation toward uncertainty. And organizations that are oriented towards uncertainty will dominate time and again because they can use uncertainty as competitive advantage. Organizations that are geared towards certainty will always be disappointed. There was a book that just came out of Oxford on the iron law of mega projects. They looked at hundreds and hundreds of huge projects like the channel or building dams and things of that sort. 
And on average, every single one of them was over 400% over budget. And I don't even know how many X times late. We've been doing construction projects as a human race since, since time began. Our computing power has gotten better. Our ability to estimate, to do cost estimates, to do schedule breakdowns. All of these things, our engineering has gotten better. So you would think that our ability to predict what a mega project should do and deliver would be fairly accurate. But again and again and again, we're wrong. Because the organizations are oriented towards certainty. While the tame and messy parts of the project are pretty easy to predict. It's the wicked parts. It's the human beings. It's what conflict that happens on the job site. It's the local councils or municipalities that have certain issues that they want to address. It's the people side that causes that. And if you're not oriented to deal with it, you're going to be banging your head against the wall all the time and you're going to be throwing your arms up in exasperation that you're 400 times over budget and that you're really, really late all the time. And you will burn people out and, and destroy your human capital. So an orientation towards uncertainty allows you to take the opposite approach. And I can tell you that it's not the person with the biggest R&D budget and the most smart guys that wins. AK-47, IED, not saying that they're winning, but they're causing a lot of trouble, right? You can cause a lot of disruption. So to tap into that disruption, whether you're big or small, takes an orientation towards uncertainty. Now, it is not the same kind of black box uncertainty. We can tie that back to revealed preferences and tie it back to communications. So this is a list from the book that has the elements of communication objects and design elements of the communication environment, and it ties it back to manifestations of uncertainty. Your manifestation toward uncertainty will be able to reveal itself in how flexible, for example, your team is, your, your organization is in organizing teams. Or, for example, your reliance on prediction. And that is directly traceable to things like the total quantity of information a person receives and, for example, the rules of who can talk to whom in a communication environment. So now again, by studying the communication environment and understanding the communication objects and what people do with them, we can not only understand that decision-making, right, that, that A part, the action that people take in the organization, we can now start to see whether our organizations are oriented towards certainty or uncertainty, and we can see the specific elements that we can change in our communication environment and our objects they can filter back to changing that orientation so that we can capitalize on uncertainty. Now, to take it even one step further, right, I actually created a measure called the Measurable Communication Action, which becomes a kind of unit of measurement for communication, for effective communication. Right? We have a unit of measurement for budget. It's dollars or pounds or euros or any other currency. We have a unit of measurement for time passing. Days, weeks, months, whatever it is. 
So in order for this to be broadly applicable and useful in an organization, we have to have a unit of measurement for communication. So that's where we came up with the measurable communication action. And what that means is that we can now plan what we expect our communication environment to look like, and then we can compare it to what it actually does look like. And then we can interpret those variances. This is again pulled from the book, but it's an analysis of COMV, communication variances, in three different scenarios. And it allows us to understand why there's a variance. For example, very often there is a variance because there's a difference in framing assumptions. How I thought we were going to solve the problem was different than how you thought we were going to solve the problem. Now that's not insignificant. Because the U.S. Department of Defense is so huge, there's actually a department within it called the Performance Assessment and Root Cause Analysis Group. And all they do is study mess-ups. When a program goes way off base, they're in charge of finding the root cause. And again, this organization has a purview of literally a trillion dollar portfolio. Right? It's always important to keep in mind that this is a massive organization. So when something is off base, we're not talking about a hundred million dollars. They wish they were a hundred million dollars off. We're talking about many million, many tens to hundreds of billions of dollars off. So they found that, for example, a mismatch in framing assumptions is a primary cause of these kind of cost overruns. And you can learn that early and ahead of time by tracking actual versus planned communication. It can also unearth things like a difference in orientation towards uncertainty. And all of these become incredibly valuable if you want to ensure that your organization is able to capitalize on uncertainty and have long-term survivability. Now, we're running a little short on time, but one organization that did this really well was Microsoft. In the mid-90s of the last century, there was a company called Netscape, and Netscape created the first web browser of the World Wide Web. So Netscape was instantly seen by Bill Gates as a massive competitive threat. He did not have blinders on. He was able to get information from his organization. They all filtered everything through to him. And unfiltered, it wasn't, you know, well, they're never going to be able to do that and, you know, just ignore them. And he literally put a stop to everything that was going on in Microsoft. And Microsoft was dominant at that time. Put a stop to it and start to create Internet Explorer. And when he did, he also changed the communication environment of the organization. There's a whole group of memos that were released as a result of, of the browser wars that were released by the Department of, Judgment, of Justice in the United States, which talks about how he explicitly changed the communication environment to meet this kind of threat of uncertainty. Another story like that is the FA-18EF. It's a $3.1 billion program, and it came after a massive failure. The A-12 Avenger, which was canceled directly by the Vice President of the United States because it was 
tens of billions of dollars over and nobody had any visibility into what was going on, but they still needed an aircraft, so they jumped in and they started creating this, the F-A-18EF. And it's an incredible piece of equipment. It's an incredible weapons platform. It's, it's really, it's one of the most successful U.S. Navy programs ever. It came in on time, on budget, and 400 pounds lighter than anticipated. And when you look at the predictions that they made in project management, you can do something with earn, called earned value management, and you make a, a PMB, a measurement baseline, a management baseline, an actual uh, planned versus actual, for example, that you could track your actuals against. Their actuals, their, their planned rather, their guess of what the future would look like 10 years later was dead on. But it wasn't because they predicted the future. It's because they created a communication environment whereby they could get accurate information and steer the program towards that line, towards what they thought it was going to be. And it was important that they did so because their stakeholders included the Vice President of the United States, the President of the United States, every member of Congress, and tens of thousands of people in the defense contractor and subcontractor community. So again, the communication environment was utilized to be able to get these kind of results. One program that didn't get it right is the Mars Climate Orbiter. $193 million program launched in 1993 to go to Mars atmosphere and study what the atmosphere and the climate look like. This is, of course, only a drawing of it because this is what happened to it. It burned up in Mars' atmosphere. Now, we're really good at getting stuff into Mars. From a technical perspective, no problem these days. Even those days. It was challenging, but we could do it. Right? From a tame, messy perspective, no problem. What happened? Well, you had one group that was developing the system that was sending navigation information to the orbiter. And you had another group that developed the system that took that information and turned it into thrust and action. One group did their communication between the machine in imperial units and the other in metric units. Right? They thought that the climate orbiter was, let's say here, it was actually here. Now, this is not a hard calculation. These are rocket scientists. They can do it in their head. But it was a failure of communication. And it was a failure of the communication environment because it only surfaced when this thing was already in Mars, Martian atmosphere. It was already getting into the orbit there. It takes time to get there. There was plenty of time to surface it, but because the communication environment was there, they weren't able to surface it, they weren't able to see it or react to it. Now, going back to the IEDs, where we started our presentation, ultimately, what the adversary decided to do was take the mechanical out of it. Take the tame and messy out of it. Let's make it wicked. Let's put the human in the loop. Let's capitalize on uncertainty. Because if there's certainty, we can just you know, change the, 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 the detonation mechanism and change what fools it. And then change the lengths and go cat and mouse, cat and mouse. But you put the human in the loop, you can't do that anymore. So they started having radio-controlled IEDs. And they would be controlled by simple cell phones. 
This is a very famous picture in the explosive ordnance disposal community. I don't know if you can see it. It says one missed call. You usually don't get one missed call. That means that the EOD tech got to this before it detonated. And the way that we started gaining an advantage was not doing cat and mouse, not doing peer-to-peer, hey, we've got more scientists, more money, more kit than you do, so we can finally figure it out. We started going after the human element, the networks, the people, and understanding how these devices were made, why they were being made, and by going to the human element, the uncertain element of it, we're able to pace and get some competitive advantage. I like to end with this story. This is the M1A1 tank. This is actually the same vehicle that we started the presentation with. This is desert camo, the other's kind of green camo. And General Norman Schwarzkopf, who was the leader of the Allied forces of the first Gulf War, used to bring young officers in front of this vehicle. He would make sure that they understood technically how the machine worked. How, what the strategy was, will you push this lever, that happens, how it operates mechanically. And he would stand them in front of this. And he would say, have you studied the manuals? Yes, sir, they would reply. Do you know how to, how to operate this? Yes, sir. Do you know how to use it tactically? Yes, sir. Do you know how to use it strategically? Yes, sir. Great, make the tank move. Officer would look at him a little bit. Is there a problem? No, sir. Make the tank move. Officer would stand in front, look at the tank, and shout, tank, move! Not surprisingly, right? The tank didn't move. Say, what's going on? I thought you said you studied everything. I thought you knew technically how this thing worked. Yes, sir. Well, make the tank move. The young officer, not wanting to uh, just appoint his commanding officer, would stand in front of their shouting, tank, move! Tank, move! Tank, move! Until finally, he got enough gumption where he turned to the general. He would say, sir, yes? Tank won't move. So why not? Because there's nobody inside, he would say. And that's the point. You have to tap people. It's people that give us our advantage. It's people that create the uncertainty, the wickedness. But it's people that create the innovations and the solutions. And we have an imperative as leaders, future leaders, current practitioners, to create the right environment that harnesses the power of people and continues to let us use uncertainty to create competitive advantage. Thank you very much.